Let's uh, open in a word of prayer. Father, Heavenly Father, long ago we have record that Paul wrote to the small church at Ephesus, praying that you would open their eyes, the eyes to their hearts, to be enlightened. And we pray that prayer this morning, Father, that you would open the eyes to our hearts, that we'd be enlightened. And we pray that by that happening, you would be glorified, your church would be glorified, and your son would be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so today's chapter is praying for power. Quite a bit different than uh, churches I would have gone to when I was first became a Christian. But let's read Ephesians three, fourteen through twenty-one. For this reason, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. So before we start dissecting and analyzing this prayer of Paul's, I was uh, remembering some of the encouragements of uh, Carson to personalize uh, these prayers. So I actually went back and started looking at the beginning of this book, all the way even to the introduction. And Carson says, the chief purpose of this book then is to think through some of Paul's prayers so that we may align our prayer habits with his. And then he gives us a list of how this could be accomplished. He's, uh, he has prolonged meditations on Paul's prayers. Learn what to pray for. Arguments to use. I never thought about presenting arguments to God. Priorities that we should adopt. What beliefs should shape our prayers and focus on Paul's petitions 
and adopt Paul's theology of prayer into our own attempts to pray. So thinking through that, I thought, well, let's try and personalize this prayer that we see in Ephesians 3, 14 through 21. And what I came up with was, Heavenly Father, I pray that out of your glorious riches you would strengthen me with power in my inner being through your Spirit so that Christ may dwell in my heart through faith. And I pray that I may have power together with all your elect to grasp how vast is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge so that I may be filled to the maximum fullness of you. Father, I know that you are able to do immeasurably more than I, all I could ask or imagine, and I pray that your power at work within me would bring glory to you, your church, and your son. I don't know about you, but I don't find myself praying like this very often. So... And Carson makes the point that he's pretty convinced that most of Western culture Christianity doesn't pray like this. And uh, at least for me, I can affirm his uh, hypothesis. You know, he brings up the uh, points that most of our prayers he believes, and in my case is probably true, is, Lord, I need this, and this person needs that, and please watch over us as we travel down the road, and we've got some health issues here, and we sure could use the helping hand. And, but uh, I don't know how often we're praying, praying for power that you already have promised to give us. So so the question then comes up, if I'm not the only one in Western culture that may have some anemia in my prayer, why would that be? We started thinking about, well, what types of training or classes do new believers get? And you might have a New believers class, a baptism class maybe, membership classes. You might even get classes for foundational doctrines, maybe even denominational distinctives. But I can't remember ever hearing anybody offer classes in prayer. I don't know if that's your... uh, History or observation too. There we go. And I, I can tell you, preparing for this uh, chapter has kind of opened my eyes a lot. So thank you, uh, Ken. So the question would be why? And you know, all well, prayers personal. Uh, I guess if you're lucky enough to have a mentor who's mature in the Lord who gives you some insights into praying. 
But I don't think most of us do, and I think that's why this book is so powerful, that we can actually look through these examples of Paul's and, uh, and be encouraged by Carson to recognize Paul's understanding of God and redemption and Christ and the power that is in us and the promises made to us and those things should begin to shape our prayer life and uh, set the priorities of what we pray for so that we can begin to grow maybe a little beyond well I need this or they need that or Please protect me going down the road and things like that. So let's begin to delve into Paul's prayer here that we read in the beginning. This prayer consists of two rich and lengthy petitions. And Paul bases those petitions on two grounds or reasons. So he's not just idly asking for things. He actually established it on things that he's understanding about God and God's promises. And at the end, he has a word of praise. It's actually a pretty powerful doxology. So the two central petitions, Paul prays that God might strengthen us with power through his spirit in our inner being. And this petition, Carson points out, actually causes us to ask a couple questions. The second petition is that we might have power to grasp the limitless dimensions of the love of Christ. And that's why in the opening prayer, I referred back to another prayer that Paul begins in the letter to the Ephesians, where he actually starts it almost the same way. For this reason, he says, he prays that the eyes of your hearts may be enlightened. And I just, man, what a, what a beautiful alliteration, huh? The eyes of your hearts. Carson points out that the nature of this power is carefully circumscribed or identified. The power for which Paul prays is mediated through God, God's Spirit. I pray that he may strengthen you with power through his Spirit. And then no less important, the sphere or the arena for this power to operate is our inner being. So what purpose does this request for power have? 
know, after all, a lot of people have wanted this power of the Spirit. We remember Simon the sorcerer really wanted this power of the Spirit. We have a lot of denominations today that really have a focus on the power of the Spirit. But it seems to be quite different from what Paul's praying for here. He's praying so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. We have to ask, doesn't this already exist? Doesn't uh, Christ, by His Spirit, take up residence in us when we become believers? Paul's writing to believers. Why would he be saying, I pray that uh, you would have power so that Christ would dwell in your hearts? Doesn't that already exist? And we break it down, focusing on the main words here of the idea of dwelling and through faith. We can extrapolate what Paul's looking for is an ever-increasing influence due to and accomplished by ever-increasing trust. That increasing fluence is the dwelling of Christ in us, and through faith it's the foundation of being realized by our trust in the claims and promises of Christ. Coffer, uh, Carson offers an analogy I actually thought was pretty good. He paints the picture of a young couple. They finally scraped together the resources to put a down payment on a house. And uh, they walk into this house, and there's still trash laying around the floor, and there's some nasty old wallpaper. There's parts that need to be repaired. It's in pretty bad shape. But they move in, and they uh, start fixing it up. And uh, in time, turn it into a, a beautiful home. So we see here, then, the idea of getting rid of the old, the dirty, the undesirable the things that don't glorify Christ. And we see this actually many times in Paul's writings, this idea of getting rid of the old, getting rid of the dirty, getting rid of the things that interfere with Christ leading your life. So I'd like to read Colossians 3, 5 through 17. It's a little long, but... It's right on with this idea of Christ coming into our hearts, dwelling, and through increasing trust and reliance, cleaning up and turning this old home into a mansion. Colossians 3, 5 through 17. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. 
Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways. In the life you once lived. But now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these. Anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has any grievances against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you are called to peace and be thankful let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms hymns and songs from the spirit singing to God with gratitude in your hearts and whatever you do whether in word or deed do it all in the name of Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through him And there's probably the clearest exhortation by Paul of letting Christ come in and clean up the house. So there's a second question that the first petition brings up. And that is, with what measure of resources is the prayer to be answered? We're asking that Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith. What are the resources that we would see here? And Paul tells us, I pray that out of his glorious riches that you may be strengthened. And what are these glorious riches? Philippians 4.19 my, And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. So it seems from Paul's perspective, everything that is coming to us from God comes through Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus has won our pardon, reconciled us, canceled our sin, given the Holy Spirit, granted eternal life, promised glorification, made us children of the new covenant, imputed his righteousness to us, risen from the dead, 
All the blessings God has for us are in the work of Jesus. So what are the resources? It's being Christ Jesus at work in our life. Cleaning up that first house. You have any questions? I fear I'm running through this pretty quickly. So let's let's summarize a little. So the first petition in this prayer then is a plea for power. Power to be holy. Power to think, act, and talk in ways utterly pleasing to Christ. Power to strengthen moral resolve. Power to walk in transparent gratitude to God. Power to be humble. Power to be discerning. Power to be obedient and trusting. And power to grow in conformity to Jesus Christ. So God's purpose for the men and women he redeems is simply is not simply to have them believe certain truths but transform them in a lifelong process that stretches toward heaven. Had any questions? No. Nope. All right, so let's look at the Second petition. That we might have power to grasp the limitless dimensions of the love of Christ. This is kind of a remarkable statement here. It's remarkable, and the fact about this petition is that Paul clearly assumes that his readers, Christians though they are, do not adequately appreciate the love of Christ. And this kind of floored me a little bit. What he presupposes... is that apart from the power of God, Christians will have too little appreciation for the love of Christ. They need the power of God to appreciate the limitless dimensions of that love. So why does Paul think it is so important He tells us he wants his readers to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. It's like, what what does that mean? To put it simply, Paul wants us to have the power to grasp the love of God in Christ Jesus to the end that we might be mature that we might be growing in all of the blessings and gifts 
that through Christ, God has intended for us. Paul appears to assume that we cannot be as spiritually mature as we ought to be unless we receive power from God to enable us to grasp the limitless dimensions of the love of Christ. I thought this was a... had a pretty good starting list of winning our pardon. I love that term in the I've mentioned before in the two earliest gospels, Mark and Matthew, Christ himself says that uh, he's giving his life a ransom for many. And the Greek word used in that instance, and both Mark and Matthew are quoting exactly the same words of Christ and the same instance. That word doesn't appear anywhere else in the New Testament. And Morris did a word study then, going back to what surviving contemporary documents there might be to try and discover exactly what this word was talking about and what it meant. And what he found was that consistently it was talking about the slave price paid to buy a slave's freedom. And we start realizing that we were enslaved to sin. We were enslaved to a lifestyle. We were enslaved to the priorities and teachings of a world that doesn't put God first. And Christ tells his disciples that his whole life is geared to a death that's going to buy many out of that slavery. So he won our pardon. He reconciled us. You know, we, we come to faith. We don't reconcile ourselves to God. It's God reconciling to us. What a gift. Huh? He canceled our sin. Imagine we can stand before God with the imputed righteousness of Christ and all of the trash in that first home the dirty wallpaper, the broken plumbing, and the messed up electrical wiring, none of that is going to be seen or present when we stand before God. What a gift. We've been given the Holy Spirit. We've been given power that we probably don't even realize yet to come into compliance 
to adopt the Christ-likeness that we have exampled before us in the Word of God. Eternal life is amazing just to meditate on eternal life, eternity with God, eternity in the kingdom, eternity in heaven, eternity with fellow believers. Glorification, an eternal body, what is that going to be like? What a gift. Children of a new covenant, imputed righteousness of Christ. Christ rose from the dead, but he said he was the first of many. We have that promise of resurrection. So when we talk about the glorious riches of his promises, these are just a few of them that we can begin to think about. Okay, so Paul has two petitions. And... He also has two grounds for making those petitions, or two reasons. I I thought it was interesting. I'd have to go all the way back to the beginning, so I won't. But Carson tells us to try to understand Paul's arguments. And you realize that uh, Paul's putting a request, and then he's also voicing the reason that request should happen. So, pretty amazing. Let's look at these. Paul petitions are in line first with God's purposes. Paul's petitions are addressed to the Heavenly Father. So these are the reasons Paul has a confidence to make these requests. I know when I read this prayer, I'm thinking, I want power for this, I want power for that. I'm going, man, this is really a bold prayer. But Paul's confident that he's praying in line with God's purposes for the individual believers he's writing to and for all generations, as we read before. And Paul's petitions are addressed to the Heavenly Father, who wants just the best for his children. Okay, so Paul's petitions are in line with God's purposes. For this reason I kneel before the Father. That's how he starts that prayer. For this reason. Well, what is the reason? It's the case that he's been building since chapter 1. In the letter he wrote to this church in Ephesus. Just a quick review. We're not going to go back and read two, two chapters, but I want to read a quick summary here by Carson. 
of what's been happening or transpiring in chapters 1 and 2. The apostle praises God for his sovereign grace in bringing lost Jews and lost Gentiles together into one new humanity. One new community. This God accomplished through the redemptive work of his son on the cross. Addressing these Gentile converts, Paul concludes, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of his household. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, <coughs> with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone, in him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So the reason then is the, apostles, the, the apostle praises God for his sovereign grace in bringing lost Jews, lost Gentiles together into one new humanity, one community. And this God accomplished through the redemptive work of his son on the cross. For this reason then means that God's declared purpose in creating this new humanity is to bring the people in it to the kind of spiritual maturity alluded to in the metaphor becoming a holy temple in the Lord. So that nasty house on that mortgage, first mortgage by that struggling couple, couple becomes a holy temple a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. In other words, Paul's prayers are entirely in line with God's purpose. Paul prays that we would be indwelt and Christ would be living in our hearts, that there would be an ever-growing influence of Christ in our lives, and that there would be an ever-growing trust and dependence on the claims and promises of Christ, all of that is exactly what God wants for us, for the believers. So Paul is praying in line with God's purposes. God's declared purposes then become for Paul a reason for advancing these types of petitions. If this is what God wants, and I'm going to pray for what God wants. And God wants you to become a holy temple that he can reside in continually and be glorified in, then that's what I'm going to pray for. Let's think about this for a minute. These are de declared purposes. We quickly learn that God is more interested in our holiness 
than in our comfort. And what I'm trying to contrast here, and I'm just using myself, is my typical prayer compared to the prayer that Paul examples. God more greatly delights in the integrity and purity of his church than in the material well-being of its members. I don't know about you, but I kind of saw that as a pretty strong denunciation of the prosperity doctrine. God is far more committed to building a corporate temple in which his spirit dwells than he is in preserving our reputation at work or in the community. He wants you to be, and we used the term earlier, a transparent reflection of Christ so that when people see us, the first thing they see is the character and power of Christ. Carson adds that he's more concerned for justice than for our ease. So then, later we'll talk about priorities. Actually, in the beginning slide, we talked about discovering the priorities of Paul and his prayers. And if we just go back over this list here, well, Paul clearly recognizes that in God's purposes for us, the priorities are holiness, integrity, purity, becoming a temple, justice, exampling, reflecting, being transparent enough that people see Christ in us. If we talk about God's will then, we think of 1 Thessalonians 4, Thessalonians 4, 3, for it is God's will you be sanctified, set apart for service for God. Okay. The second ground or reason for Paul's petitions is that he's addressing them to the Heavenly Father. So the God that we approach in prayer is not simply the transcendent other, the universal power. He is the Heavenly Father, and we are, as we just read, in Ephesians 2.19, members of his household, adopted children. So God, uh, Paul approaches God with his petitions. He reminds himself that the God he addresses is his heavenly father 
and he is a good God. He knows how to give good gifts. Carson points out the more we reflect on the kind of God who is there, the kind of God who has disclosed, revealed himself in Scripture, and supremely in Jesus Christ, the kind of God who has revealed his plans and purposes for his own household, the kind of God who hears and answers prayers, the more we shall be encouraged to pray. So a real and vital knowledge of God not only teaches us what to pray, but gives us an incentive to pray, knowing that we're praying to our Father and his desire is to give us good gifts. His desire was to redeem us from the foundation of creation. His desire was to draw us to Christ. His desire was to give us a heart of flesh, fill us with love, extricate us out of the kingdom of the world, and place us into his kingdom that he might rule in our hearts. Paul closes this prayer with a final word of praise. The God whom he petitions is able to do immeasurably uh, more than all we ask or imagine. And the ultimate purpose of Paul's prayer is that there be glory to God in the church and in Christ. The God whom he petitions is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. Paul professes a confidence that is nothing more than the entailment of belief that God is omnipotent, that God can do anything. However, Paul is saying more than that about God. God is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, not only because he is powerful, but also because he is generous. He loves to give good gifts to his children, the greatest gift that he gives us is Christ. And he also gives us through his spirit the power and desire to love Christ and to overcome those things in our life that would stand in the way of giving ourselves in love to Christ. Paul's concluding word of praise thus becomes an immensely 
powerful incentive to pray. Because God can do anything. Well, why aren't we praying then for just about everything? The ultimate purpose of Paul's prayer is that there be glory to God in the church and in Christ Jesus. This was a pretty uh, convicting part of the chapter. Carson really starts pointing some fingers. It is possible to ask for good things for bad reasons. Everybody agree with that statement? It's a pretty profound statement. It's possible to ask for good things for bad reasons. So do we bring these petitions before God both with a proximate goal or an immediate goal that we might receive what we ask for? But do we also bring our petitions before God with an ultimate goal that God might be glorified in the results that happen in our lives. So the question then is, God becomes so central to all of our thought and pursuits and thus to our praying that we cannot easily imagine asking for anything without consciously longing that the answer bring glory to God, to the church, and to Christ Jesus. This is, uh, let me read a little what Carson says here about uh, asking for good things for bad reasons. How, how could that be? We may desire the power of God to operate in our lives so that we may become more holy. We may ask for power to grasp the limitless dimensions of the love of God and yet distort these good requests by envisaging their fulfillment within a framework in which the entire universe revolves around our improvement. I want to, you know, if I can be more holy, things will happen, I won't have this, the Bob, where, as opposed to the idea of God, empower me to become more holy, that you might be glorified. How tragic then, if our prayers for good things leave us Listen here, because this was pretty convicting. Leave us still thinking about ourselves. So when we go to prayer and we've got this long list of this and that, do we end reflecting and meditating on how the accomplishment of these things we prayed for will ultimately glorify God, glorify the church, build up the church, 
and glorify Christ. So this is Paul's vision in his concluding word of praise. He prays that there might be glory to God both in the church as the church progressively obeys God and pleases him and makes him the center of his existence and also in Christ Jesus, presumably as Christ Jesus is lifted up by the church in thought, in word, and deed. This goes back to the idea of living transparently. And I know that's an ambiguous statement, but Carson uses it, living transparently so that the, within a few moments of encountering people, the, what they realize is that this is a, uh, a believer. This is a child of God. This one, this is someone whose heart's desire is to uh, be more Christ-like. And this is someone who Christ's love is exuding out of. I think this is someone I can trust or someone I'd want to be around. I don't know for you. This was a pretty convicting chapter for me. <laughs> and I'm a li- finishing a little early, so we have time for any questions or comments if anybody has any. If not, uh, then yes, Rob. Well, what Paul is saying is that what he's asking by ourselves we can't right it's it's limitless how can you know limitless Paul's prayer is that we would have power by his spirit to begin to grasp the limitless love of Christ we all if we're reflecting at all on our understanding of what we're reading, do we feel that we truly understand the love of Christ for us, the love of God for us? We were redeemed from the foundation of the world, and Christ came with an explicit purpose of dying on the cross, that he might ransom slaves. Um, I don't know that I can say that I 100% grasp the dimensions of that love by the triune God. And that's what Paul's praying for, is that the Holy Spirit would empower these believers to begin to grasp more and more of this uh, love of the triune God that has been poured into our lives. Anyone else agree or disagree or we we had the men's discipleship group yesterday 
and I was eating eagerly, waiting for the section that we never got to. Because he uh, it talked about recognizing that salvation for many has two ages or epochs. And the first being the age or epoch of sin in an individual's life. And the latter being the age of Christ's love and righteousness being poured out upon us post-redemption. And uh, you guys are going to make me choke up here. Um, For someone who came to Christ at uh, 29, that was like a light switch moment. I know there's lots of people who, by the grace of God, have been raised with a knowledge of the Word of God and a Christian home and a Christian upbringing and training and an an understanding. And and, um, And so the transition when the power of God truly by the Spirit penetrates their life and gives them a heart of flesh may not be as dramatic as for some who, uh, like Paul said, after listing all of those horrendous vices, said, and so were some of you. So once were you. And uh, so it was for me a light switch moment, that darkness to light. And uh, it just throws you on the, your knees, throws you to the floor. You know, how in the heck could you, you know, save me, you know, type thing. So, yeah. Yeah. I, I am constantly, I don't know why, but I constantly find myself going back to, well, what was it like for those believers in A.D. 40? Because they did not have the word. These people, only by hearing the truth and the power of the Holy Spirit, turning their heart uh, and, and birthing them anew, began to live as best they could, and they were lucky if they got a few circulating letters, what, after 20 years maybe? A few letters started showing up, and this is what I mean, this is why I'm having to correct you a little bit here. You guys are doing a great job, but you're a little off the mark here. And, uh, but look at the, you talked about the generosity of God, that he would, in time, pull all that together so that we actually have the scriptures today. And uh, like I said, I don't know why I'm constantly thinking, well, how was it for these people, man? They just didn't have it. 
And I don't know how much of them were easy, even exposed to the Septuagint, at least the Gentiles who were becoming Christians. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's a powerful gift from God that we have the scriptures. And uh, we can read about all of these promises that are given to us and God's desire that, that uh, they flow into us and we become a holy temple that he resides in. Yeah, or had hated Yeah, and it goes back to the earlier slide where Paul basically is saying, look, you guys have been brought together and you're a new humanity. You're children of a new covenant. And, uh, yeah, it's extremely powerful. All right, that's it. Gee, I almost made it on time. Thank you.